you join me in taking up your Bibles this morning. Let's turn in them to the book of Hebrews. Such a blessed book to be in. I'll probably say that about every book. Don't you find it that way? The book you're studying the most is the one you're most in love with. So you get 66 chances at love in the Bible. How wonderful is that? Each with a aspect, a theme, a view of God that is special. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 this morning, and I'll begin our reading. Begin our reading in verse 7. Speaking of the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, our text reads, Who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard, because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Would you bow in prayer with me this morning? God, our Father, we turn to you this day before this text, and we say this word, help. Lord, help us understand our great high priest, Jesus, of the order of Melchizedek. Increase what we know about him, what we believe of him, and what we trust concerning him so that our walk would be mature and steadfast, anchored. Lord, only you can help us in this. We ask help for this preacher in this endeavor that we might see Jesus, the high priest, as he's revealed here today. In Jesus' name we beg you. Amen. Jesus, as human, weakness, a theme, here in Hebrews. Weakness of mankind, made a little lower than the angels, yet somehow exalted and given position in this creation. You see, Jesus made a little lower as well for a time. How can we discuss the human weakness of Jesus appropriately and rightly? I confess I have been somewhat afraid of this passage that we're working through verses 7 through 10. Afraid in a number of ways. First, that I might fully understand it.
And I pray that I understand enough to impart to you what I've learned. But knowing that there's more here that we could exhaust. Along those lines, I will warn you, you can ignore the second half of your notes. I've already made that decision. It happened this morning in my chair, studying these notes again, and I said, no. Too, too many things. Today, just this thing. Understanding high priestly weakness in the flesh. My second fear is that I might fail to teach the meaning clearly enough and perhaps cause some misunderstanding or open a line of thinking that causes doubts in your minds about the deity of Christ. Whenever we teach about this amazing being, God the Son, who being God became incarnate, meaning in flesh, and having both humanity and deity combined together in a mysterious way that always confounds our intellect and our mental abilities, it is always a danger when the text demands that we emphasize one or the other that people can misconstrue that as taking away from the other side. For instance, in emphasizing the human weakness of Jesus, we may not for an instant believe that Jesus had ever stopped at any moment, in any instant in time, being 100% fully God. But in teaching about his humanity as a necessity, particularly for his role as our high priest, we must see his complete humanity for when Jesus walked on earth, and as he even ministers now, but particularly when he walked on earth as a man, he did not walk and he did not operate with his divine powers in action. But someone might say, Pastor Fred, but he knew what was in people's hearts and sometimes he knew what was in people's minds and he, he told them that. But if you'll read your Bibles carefully, you will come to understand that Jesus had those things revealed to him by God the Holy Spirit as he walked completely as a weak man. He laid aside omniscience and omnipotence and functioned as a man. Such thing we're familiar with with the prophets who often knew what was going on in people's minds. Even one king, an enemy of Israel, said, Is he listening in my chambers? This prophet of God, how did he know? He was not deity, but the Holy Spirit revealed these things to him. So already some of you may have switched off the, the radio and said, Okay, I'm done, I don't get this. Well, that's my caveat, not my sermon. If you will allow me, if you allow me this morning because the text demands that I teach on the priestly weakness of Jesus in these next four verses, and today I hope to entertain verse 7 
appropriately. So come with me in our understanding of our great high priest, of which this book has called on us to confess him rightly and to even have a confidence in him. So let us know him as this man, this man who walked with human weakness, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. For in here he is shown to be strengthened in this weakness by three significant means. By godly fear, by suffering, and by his holy calling. This is presented to us in this book of Hebrews so that the Hebrew people might mature in their understanding of who this new great high priest of an entirely different order, not of the Aaronic priesthood, not of the Levites, but of Melchizedek, the one who is known to be of the tribe of Judah. How they will come to accept him and understand him and believe in him and trust him in his ministry for them, and thereby may we as well. For I've said in the last few weeks that Modern Christianity needs to realize their need of a high priest. And the neglect of it is the neglect of a great area of truth in the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So understanding high priestly weakness is our focus in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. First we look at a weakness in the flesh that is strengthened by godly fear. Look at verse 7 again. Speaking of Jesus, the great high priest, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, stop there. Who in the days of his flesh, the writer is commenting on his being a human, a man. And he's drawing our attention to that time in which Jesus walked on earth as a man. And every day he walked on earth, he walked as a man just exactly as we do. In the flesh, the humanity of Jesus Christ is emphasized again and again. If we just walk back in our text to chapter 5, verse 1, we read this. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Jesus as well is then referenced as a man who's a priest for men. Back in our text a little bit further to chapter 4, verse 15, this great passage that we all quote so often, but yet sometimes we quote it without really connecting with who Jesus really was as our great high priest, or even perhaps have doubts about the veracity of this text. For in 4 and 15 we read, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he walked in the weakness of human flesh, and he can relate to you in that position. And sometimes we say to ourselves, well, he was God, so it was easier. But rather, he was God and walking in the flesh, so it was harder. He never gave in to a temptation even once. And when you give in to temptation, the heat comes off and you're done with the temptation. You've given in, there's no more pressure. Jesus never gave in. 
in the days of his flesh. In the days of his flesh, he was in weakness. I want you to look at verse 7 again. In the days of his flesh, listen to these words. When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. Now here's where I want to go next. He's offering up prayers, supplications, vehement cries and tears. Listen. To him, to him who was able to save him from death. To him who was able to save him from death. God is able. We know in our minds the omnipotence of God. That there is nothing that God can't do if he wants to. All power, all ability is his. And it says that this God was able to save this man, Jesus, from death. But yet we also know God didn't do that. God did not save Jesus Christ, his son, from death. Though he was able. And men, as men, we struggle with this. We struggle with this even in our own lives. We know God is able. And we say, God is good. And we say, God is loving to me. And then we would ask ourselves and we would call out at times, then why did you let this happen? If you could have stopped that bus from going over the bridge, if you could stop that little girl from being sold into sex trafficking, why didn't you do it? If you could have stopped this war in Ukraine where innocent men, women, and children are being put out of their homes and impoverished with nothing more than what they can carry, why doesn't he do it? Well, Jesus is going to teach us something about God today and the weakness of humanity. Jesus prayed to God who was able to save him from death, yet the Father did no such saving of Jesus, his Son, from death. What I want you to note from all of this is that though he did not do this, we need to realize something that God is, in regard to humanity, infinite. And humanity in regards to God, we are finite. And in a position of finitude, I think that's really a word, we don't know the end from the beginning. We cannot evaluate all the different pieces of the puzzle of life, all the threads of what God is doing in the world to make clear assessments as to their rightness or wrongness. What we are told this morning is this, and I find it profound. Our text says, he was heard. Our text says he was heard. God he is who he prayed to who was able to save him from death. And our text says he was heard so that must mean something other than he did what Jesus asked. 
If God heard him, why didn't God save him? Is there another understanding we should have of this phrase, he was heard? He was heard. So what does that mean exactly? And of what good is it to us to know or be made aware of that God heard Jesus when Jesus prayed and made these supplications in such a way? Was it that God heard him and sat back and said, well, good hearing from you, and do nothing? Did he just sit back and do nothing? This cannot be what our text means. Rather, we are in our finite condition and sometimes in our interpretive problems, uh, not desirous of going to the lengths we need to discover what this truly means. God did hear. That is a point of the text that cannot be denied. God heard. God heard in this sense not to give or to grant outside of his own will. That God has a will. Even in 1 John 5, verse 14, many of you know and have even quoted this to other Christians in time of need who were perhaps praying for things that did not come about and that they really wanted to happen. We heard from John who said, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I believe this is going on in this text, that God heard. God heard and God acted. That God acted in accordance with his divine will and plan of salvation. And so God acted to help Jesus. So God acted to help Jesus, not in saving him from death, but to help him face death. He acted to help Jesus bear the weight, to take the load of suffering to fulfill his redemption plan. Our text says in the days of his flesh, and so I want to take you back to the days of the flesh of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. It seems from what we're reading here that these prayers and supplications that had with them a vehemency of cries and even tears that are told to us, as God was pray, as God the Son in Jesus was praying to God the Father. It seems to take us most clearly to those last moments of the life of Jesus. It takes us to the prayers of Jesus in Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, verse 36, let's go there with Jesus and his disciples. We read the text, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go over, go and pray over there. I've always wondered why he sat them in a place not right with him. I can't answer that today, but I find it interesting. Perhaps it is the condition that he was in 
that his aloneness with God was most important. Verse 37 of Matthew 26, we read, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. We've said weakness. The weakness of humanity is that humanity feels. And now he is sorrowful and deeply distressed. He is going very soon into the hands of his own people and even the Romans. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. You can only imagine that after three years of walking with this man Jesus, this great leader, this one who is teaching them so profoundly and powerfully, and even the Pharisees are falling back from him like sheaves of wheat in their terror of his asking them a question. Now he says he is sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Jesus, it says in Hebrews 5, verse 7, that he offered up prayers and supplications. That he's asking something from he who was able to save him from death. And he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And with all of that idea of the cup, we have loaded the history of the wrath of God that has been revealed in the Old Testament and brought forth into the New even the cup that Jesus drinks at the Last Supper, symbolic of him undergoing the wrath of God, very God, against the sin of all men who would be laid upon him. He knows this means wrath. If this cup so full of your wrath against sin could pass, please let this cup pass for me. That's humanity. And in hearing those words, we must never think that Jesus was departing from God and his perfect plan, but that he was articulating to God and to us his weakness. What is it that is born when a single person, a single man dies in their sins and thereby suffers the full weight of wrath upon himself for his refusal to repent before God and his lack of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and so receives in himself the anger of a righteous holy God. Why is death so frightening? Because it's given unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. And every man knows it. Jesus is facing a death wherein he who had never sinned will take the righteous, just wrath of God upon himself and in his weakness, he prays. On his face, if it is possible, 
let this cup pass from me. But then he prays, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That is acknowledgement of the higher purposes of God in the face of an insurmountable death. Verse 40, we read, Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? I find great humanity here. That Jesus, while he's praying and pouring his heart out before God, and he's asked these, his closest, these are his three intimates, Peter and the Boanerges, these sons of thunder who are always ready for a fight, who are always prepared to go. Could you at least watch with me for a while to watch through the night hours to do this thing? And he comes back from pouring his heart out to God, and they are asleep. What? What? I think the hardest thing sometimes of being a human who's never sinned and walking among every other human who's a sinner was a daily trial. A trial of their weaknesses. I thought you had my back. I thought you were going to be here with me. Where were you? Well, we were sleeping. Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray. And now he addresses their humanity. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. That should be a message to every Christian. Prayer is a help against temptation, the weakness of the flesh. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. In this context, the weakness again and again of being in the flesh is called upon for our recognition. And he says to his disciples, don't you realize that even the spirit has a desire to do these things, but yet the flesh is weak. And the second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. What an exercise in prayer this is to acknowledge both what you desire of God and what you need help with from God and acknowledge the will of God that you may not fully and completely understand or even in understanding you may not want it. That's because you walk in the flesh. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See my betrayers at hand. We read these texts, but we have to remember that when we read our Bibles, oftentimes we see repetition of the same, the same scene, the same exact situation 
that runs throughout the Gospels. Whenever that happens, we need to pay attention to it. When all three Gospels record an event, God wants us to see it, but he doesn't just want us to see it in repetition. He wants us to see it with the right view. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is presented as the king who has come. And so that emphasis is given to the entirety of that book, authenticating Jesus, Christ, the king in the line of David. Even the genealogy of Matthew traces from David. But when we get to the book of Luke, we see the book of Luke have another focus. It has the focus on the humanity of Jesus Christ, his weakness. And so in that book, more times than any other, the title given to him, even by himself, is the Son of Man. Flesh. Human. Weak. And so in the Gospel of Luke, if you want to know how the man went through the ministry, you will find more humanity of Jesus in the book of Luke than any other book. For that is its emphasis. You will see Jesus express feelings and emotions more than others. Jesus wept. You will see his real pain. You will see his real tiredness. You will see his hunger. You will see all of these things weighing upon him in an emotional sense. His dealings with his disciples more emotionally related, more humanly revealed. I take you to the very same scene, Gethsemane, before the betrayal and the prayers of Jesus. He's made prayers and supplications. Now let's hear some vehement cries. In Luke 22, verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, right away in this text, he addresses their human weakness and their temptations. Verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done it seems from Hebrews feeding back into this that the cries of Jesus were not just passive, but they were very, very passionate, vehement, with emphasis, with the deepest amount of care. But it's only in this text that we read the next line. It's only in Luke that we find this out about God. We have read in our text in Hebrews that Jesus reached out to God in prayer in such an intimate way, crying out to God who could save him from sin, and he was heard. And right here we see him heard. We don't see the cup passing by. We see God strengthening him to face the death to come. Christian, there's something for us here. We who walk in weakness. Then the angel appeared, verse 43, Luke 22. Listen to this, mark it in your Bible, circle it, do whatever you have to do. Pay attention. 
Then the an angel appeared to him from heaven, doing what? Strengthening him. The disciples are asleep. They're no help. He keeps having to wake them up. But God is not distant and far away. God is not uncaring. God is not unhearing. God is present. God is working. God sends an angel. Hasn't he told us even in this book about the angels? And hasn't he said in chapter 1 verse 14, Of the angels are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Do you believe it? It is unto Jesus that an angel came, just like an angel came to Daniel and strengthened him after he saw the end of the world in real time, in his dreams, in his visions. And God strengthened him. And it was to Jesus facing death on the cross that an angel appeared from heaven strengthening him. But notice, it did not relieve the pressure. It helped to go through the pressure. Verse 44, and being in agony. Because now he has an answer. Now he has God's response. You're going through it. And he says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. Physiologically, he is undone. Cell lysis, obviously, probably taking place. And even this, he is happening. Our text in Hebrews says, cries and tears. We don't see tears. We see drops of blood. God doesn't always tell us exactly everything that happened. But if he is sweating drops like great blood, perhaps... Tears are the minor thing and the major needs to be pointed out. For whatever agony this was, you, a believer, will never face it. Because Jesus Christ was heard and Jesus Christ was strengthened. So Jesus Christ went forward. Verse 45, he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And now we understand the humanity of the disciples. We say, why couldn't they stay awake? Why weren't they with him? Why didn't they have his back? Because the sorrow of what he had revealed to them about what was coming forth unto them was upon them, and their flesh was weak. Brothers and sisters, there needs to be compassion in the weaknesses of the children of God in Christ. For if you do not understand that God helps us in our weakness, you're missing a great truth. But unto Jesus, help came not around it, not to avoid it, but to go through death. I take great joy from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 as a Christian, knowing I never because of God's faithfulness to save me despite my sin, can trust this truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
God will never leave you without comfort in whatever he has allowed into your life. Whatever tragedy, whatever trial, whatever difficulty, he is a comforter. Listen to verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, there all of a sudden we have a connection with Jesus Christ who in his weakness suffered and our connection to that suffering. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also will partake of the consolation. That God has given you a gift of suffering after Christ. And it is Christian maturity that would say, and depart from ignorance. Thy will be done. Help me through. I've left one important part of this verse out. It comes at the end. And so I give it to you now. In the weakness of his humanity, the weakness of his flesh, when he cried out to God with prayer, supplication, vehement cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. Why was he heard? Because of his godly fear. Because of his godly fear. How does God the Son, walking in humanity, have this assessment given to him in his actions and thoughts. Godly fear. How can God the Son have a godly fear of or for God the Father? The Greek term eulabia Eulabia. Now that doesn't do much for me, does it you? But it does if you look it up. It does if you look at it in context. A man by the name of Mundell, Dr. Mundell said that this word comes from a word group that carries the idea, listen to this, of distance. Of distance. An idea of separation. And now think of God and man. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening and had intimate relations with him. And then they fell into sin and Adam and Eve separated themselves from God. But God came after them. And the Bible is written about God coming after fallen man. For even in the law of Moses, the whole setup of the temple was to draw Israel, the people of God, near to himself. For though they had been separated from God, now all of a sudden God was coming to live in the midst of his people. Yet there was a 
separation. All uncleanness, all of these things, all of the sin laws, all of the cleanliness laws was to remind them that anything that was unholy, anything that was sinful, anything that was unclean had a separation from God. It could not come close. The holiness of God demanded a reverence, demanded a separation. And there was a great and mighty curtain across the holy of holies. And only one high priest, only once a year, was allowed into the very presence of God. And it was dangerous. And even his clothes were to symbolize the purity and wearing in full white linen and offering and not entering without blood of sacrifice before God he could enter once a year. Separation. And all of that was teaching Israel that you cannot come near God as a sinful person. You need help. There's separation. There is a reverence in its holiness. I quote Dr. Mundell when he says, when faced with the awe-inspiring, sublime, or the holy, Man always keeps a respectful distance and is sometimes seized with fear. This word only occurs in the book of Hebrews. It only occurs in Hebrews with context to the great high priest Jesus. Let me show you its application further on to even believers in Christ Jesus, the great high priest. Chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, in the midst of a warning about refusing God, it says, therefore, since we are receiving, listen, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably how? With reverence and, here's our word, eulabia, godly fear. Built upon the person of Jesus, the great high priest. His godly fear. Our godly fear. Serving God. I believe this term proclaims the reverence of Jesus Christ, the man, in the days of his flesh. His reverence for God the Father. I think it further denotes his devotion to God and for his Father. You know, we say a lot of this in our age. Um, what does this look like? Boy, Pastor, good sermon. Woo, good stuff. Wow. Godly fear. Want to have some of that, right? Well, Jesus had it. Okay, good. Godly fear. I'm going to work some of that up. What does it look like? How do you act it out? Long. You want the long version or the short? Somebody said short. Sorry, I'm doing long first. This is seen in Christ's submission to the Father's will and plan. Short version. Obedience. 
What is godly fear? He's heard for his godly fear. He simply knows God's plan. He knows God's will and he obeys God's commands. If you love me, obey my commands. And some of you might say in your heart, it's so easy for you to say, you're God. No, don't ever say that again. He obeyed God even to death, death on the cross. That's what he did. John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. That's godly fear. Father, Glorify your name. In his humanity, he had reverence for the deity of God the Father and that his life was a reference point for that glorious person, God the Father. Glorify your name. A selfless reverence, a godly fear unto obedience. Then a voice from heaven came saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Christian, how do you sound? Do you say, I respect you, Lord, and revere your plan? your plan of salvation, your plan for the world, your plan for me, therefore I will do according to your perfect will, though this is terribly difficult. I can trust you, God, to bring me through even if you bring me unto death. Let me give you an example from a human. And these last words will not be mine. They will be from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Speaking from the book of the kings, 1st King 19. Ahab and Jezebel are king and queen of Israel. Elijah has contested all the prophets of Israel and won on Mount Carmel in a mighty way. All the prophets of Baal are dead. He has said there's going to be rain and he made the king Ahab go look for it seven times and the rain came, glory and power. King Ahab goes to return to Jezreel and God puts upon Elijah this great fleetness of foot and he runs before the chariot all the way to Jezreel. Here's a man that makes a movie. That's the guy I want to be like in my Christianity. But he gets to the gate and the queen pronounces. Verse 2 of chapter 19, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he, Elijah, saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. 
That's humanity. That's one mightily used and now in the weakness of nothingness. Verse 4, we read this, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed. He prayed fire down from heaven and it came on the wet sacrifice and burned it up and burned the prophets and then rain came and covered all things and he ran before a chariot and now he says, he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Why do I reference him? I reference him along with Christ because you're living a human life and you're struggling with human things and you are beset by human weaknesses and you maybe even have said at times, this is enough, Lord. Kill me now. I want off this thing. Stop the ride. I want to get off. That's real. That's human. And what are we to do? I take these words from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He says, and I quote, It is a remarkable thing that the man who was never to die. Let me read that first line again. It was a remarkable thing that the man who was never to die, for whom God had ordained an infinitely better lot, the man who should be carried to heaven in a chariot of fire and be translated that he should not see death should thus pray, let me die, I am no better than my father's. We have here a memorable proof that God does not, God does not always answer prayer in kind, though he always does in effect. He said he gave Elijah something better than that which he asked for and thus really heard and answered him. Strange was it that the lion-hearted Elijah should be so depressed by Jezebel's threat as to ask to die. And blessedly kind was it on the part of our heavenly father that he did not take his desponding servant at his word. There is a limit to the doctrine of the prayer of faith. We are not to expect that God will give us everything we choose to ask for. We know that we sometimes ask and we do not receive because we ask amiss. If we ask for that which is not promised, if we run counter to the spirit which the Lord would have us cultivate, if we ask contrary to his will or to the degrees of his providence, if we ask merely for the gratification of our own ease and without an eye to his glory, we must not expect that we shall receive. Yet when we ask in faith, Nothing doubting. If we receive not the precise thing asked for, we shall receive an equivalent and more than an equivalent for it. As one remarks, if the Lord does not pay in silver, he will in gold. And if he does not pay in gold, he will in diamonds. And if he does not give you precisely what you ask for, he will give you that which is tantamount to it and that which you will greatly rejoice to receive in lieu thereof. Be then, dear Christian, be then, dear Christian, much in prayer and make this evening a season 
of earnest intercession. But take heed to what you ask. Pray with me. And can it be that I should gain an entrance in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his shame? Lord Jesus, how we are undone by the enormity of the weight you carried humanly. And yet you obeyed in godly fear righteously. Increase our faith in you who died for us that the separation between us and God is completely removed through you. There is someone possibly within the sound of my voice who is still separate from God, separate and under the judgment of God for their own sin and will face it alone without Jesus Christ who went to the cross for sin. I beg you today, call out. Call out, save me from my sin, dear Lord. Apply the blood of Christ to me, for I deserve death and hell. Yet because Jesus suffered in my place, I want to know life everlasting and never face death. I pray that that would be prayed and known today. And if you've prayed that prayer, talk to a Christian brother or sister, your mom and dad, someone who knows Christ, and tell them that they might lead you to maturity. Take us, Lord, from this place, knowing you, our high priest, better in your humanity in the days of your flesh. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.